Hey, everyone. Quick note, today's show has a curse word. All right, here's the show. All right, here I am. I'm outside the office. Today is Slate's first official day back at work. I'm not really sure if I should be wearing a mask or not as I walk into this office building. All right, let's do it. First thing I notice is the air conditioning. It's like 45 degrees in here. And completely empty. Hey, I'm Henry Grabar, in for Lizzie O'Leary. I come to you with a recording from a place that has been virtually off-limits for nearly 18 months. An American corporate office building. Specifically, Slate's office in downtown Brooklyn, which has been closed to us since March 2020. Lots of people have joined the company since and they don't know the first thing about this place. Your ID should work on three doors, so it would be this door? That's Amanda. She's giving a tour that I dropped in on. There were a few hiccups. The scanner doesn't work. The dishwasher doesn't work. Neither does the coffee maker. And, metaphor alert, the literal water cooler is broken. I, I had a guy come in and look at the filter, and he was just like, no one should be drinking this. Like, no one. Like, it's not, it's not safe. So, uh, I wouldn't recommend drinking that. I don't want to get anyone sick. But everyone got to see their old colleagues, some of whom I hadn't seen in more than a year. Katie, how's it going today? Oh, uh, I'm really busy. I have to call. I'm going to call Henry. Hi. Sorry about that. So this is interesting. Susan hasn't, Susan moved to Charlottesville a little before the pandemic, so she hasn't been in this office with a desk of her own. And how long, Susan? Two years. So I found a container of plastic straws that also include two metal straws. I really like- Who gave you those metal straws? You did, Henry. (laughs) Because I like to chew on straws when I'm concentrating. But now, in the years since we've left the office, plastic straws have become literal gold. So I'm really excited to get back to them. You've got the last collection of plastic straws in Brooklyn. <laughs> in Brooklyn. None of this agave shit. <laughs> <laughs> is this a conversation we'd be having on Zoom? I don't think so. As banal as this chit-chat is, it's the sound of a major pivot point in American life. Pandemic-era questions about the irrelevance of the office are inching towards a resolution. Some bosses are calling employees back. Others are telling them they don't have to come back at all. Months of speculation about the future of remote work are ending in corporate dicta that restore the old status quo or reverse it. And that has profound implications for downtown buildings, for the cities that depend on their property taxes, for the small businesses that depend on their traffic, for the service workers who maintain them, and for the trains and buses that make a big downtown of office buildings possible. But perhaps most of all, it has implications for the workers themselves. Many office workers don't want to go back to a five-day week in the office. Today on What Next TBD, how to make the new era of the office work for office workers. (laughs) 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey there, I've got it and it's uh, and it's recording. I just turned it on. This is Bridget Schulte. She's the director of the Better Life Lab at New America, and she thinks a lot about how messed up our office culture used to be. You know, the old nine to five or nine to six or maybe seven forty five. Fittingly, even though this is Slate's first week back in the office, I spoke to her remotely. All right. Well, Bridget, maybe we could start by having you describe your recording setup. Where are you and where's the microphone? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm in my home office where I have been sort of stuck for the last year. And I've got my iPhone sitting on top of a stack of books all about work. So I've got A World Without Work by Dan Suskin. I've got Flourish. I've got Thursday is the new Friday. I've got Scarcity. I've got A Great Place to Work for All and on and on and on. I love this. So we're actually recording your argument about remote work from atop a stack of books about remote work. Basically, the the books are all about how work really doesn't work right now. It didn't work before the pandemic. It's certainly not working during the pandemic. And that's why this is sort of a, a pivotal moment. Can we figure out how to change work and our relationship to work? And is this the moment that we do it? And it seems like we've been talking about this for a year, um, the weirdness of remote work and the ways in which it's better, the ways in which it might be worse. But this is the moment when after all these months of speculation and discussion, it feels like the rubber is hitting the road. I mean, JP Morgan brought back workers on Tuesday. Goldman brought them back earlier this month. Mark Zuckerberg says Facebook will allow all employees to keep working from home. It seems like at white collar offices, this is the moment to either consolidate these changes or reverse them. This really is a critical moment. What comes next, you know, in the next three to six months could be the start of defining what happens in the next 10, 20 years or the next generation. These are critical moments. And I have to say, we're all over the place. You know, we work, I mean, this was a little disingenuous because this is their business model, but they were saying, you know, you have to be in the office to prove that you're a committed and dedicated worker. So you've kind of got those on one side, everybody back, you know, everybody back in the office. And then you're right, on the other side, you've got Mark Zuckerberg saying, hey, I kind of liked having more time at home. I liked not having to like fight the commute. So I'm going to have more of a hybrid. I like like having more time to ride my my hoverboard. (laughs) Right. through the lake with the American flag. <laughs> right, right. You know, so you've got, you've kind of got a range of companies trying to decide what to do. And I have to tell you, I'm confused. It's all over the place. You know, there'll be one survey that'll say companies are, they're embracing remote or hybrid work and they'll, they'll cut down all these real estate costs. This is going to be great. And then a few days later, new survey, all CEOs, they're, you know, they want people back into the office. So I think that there's, we're in real flux the first people out of the gate could really set the tone for what comes next. 
Right. And you don't think that we should go back to normal and not just because you're calling in from the beach. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that we should go back to the way it was. It's not the choice of going back to the office and the way things were or uh, having some new everybody working at home or out of coffee shops. I think the choice right now is work shaped and defined our lives before the pandemic, and it didn't really work. If you were a professional with a college degree or more, you worked on Wall Street, well, maybe it it paid you a whole lot, but it also ate you alive. It cost health, it cost relationships. If you were an essential worker, what we call essential workers now, what we used to call low-wage workers, hourly workers, you didn't have enough hours, you didn't have enough money, you were scrambling to make, uh, you know, find other, uh, you know, other jobs to make ends meet. So work was the dominant force in our lives before the pandemic. It's so tied with identity and meaning, and it's very complicated in the United States. It's how what we how we value each other and what we kind of what we do is who we are. But it wasn't giving us. It wasn't even giving us sort of the basics in some cases. Americans work longer hours than our peers in rich countries. We have shorter vacations, fewer benefits, and later retirements. And what do we have to show for it? Levels of economic inequality unseen since the late 19th century. That's the world of work that got shut down last spring. Let me ask you about some of the advantages of these remote work policies for workers uh, first, and then we'll get to the boss's perspective. But one thing that gets trotted out a lot is the idea of work-life balance, um, that the, the commute really just took up so much time. And so uh, on the one hand, I guess you have this promise of, of, of more time spent at home, spent with family, spent on tasks you want to accomplish in your personal life. And on the other, maybe uh, the prospect that that commuting time is actually just getting used to work more and that without the office as a place to concentrate your work tasks, those responsibilities end up encroaching on, on your life at home. I would say that the the responsibilities at work were already encroaching on life at home. You know, if you look at work hours, if you look at time use work, and again, this is pre-pandemic, there was already this phenomenon called spillover, you know, work spilling over into family and home life, creating a lot of work-life conflict, work-life tension, work-family tension, and very little spillover the other way, spillover of family or home demands spilling into work or taking us away from a work. So the phenomenon of work already sort of expanding and encroaching uh, on our lives was already in effect before the pandemic. And I do feel like that's part of why so many people who were able to work remotely at home might have felt a sense of relief. You know, it's like, oh my God, I can finally balance my checkbook. Oh my God, I can, you know, I all of these these tasks that I, I load up on Saturday and then I'm too exhausted on Sunday to do anything fun. You know, all of that there was finally time for. You know, you could right. do it in the mornings or the evenings. You know, I think that, I, honestly, I think the pandemic sort of reminded people uh, just how much of their own lives they were missing. Yeah, the surveys show that people like remote working. Um, but I guess one other question then is, to the extent that the office has continued to function as we're all remote, uh, are we coasting on those connections with colleagues that we formed in uh, the IRL era before? Like, you know, as, as staff turnover uh, picks up, are, are we going to find that the, the bonds that sustain this remote work period start to fray as we realize we don't actually 
know or recognize our colleagues anymore. If you go fully remote, then that's sort of what you're talking about. That's actually called distributed work. And there are companies that are like that. It doesn't matter if you work in Utah or, you know, Bogota, Colombia, you know, they have created a culture that works and thrives because it's distributed. And you really have to know how to do that and you have to embrace it and create those relationships that you, that's really important, like you're talking about, how you build that sense of psychological safety and trust. I was going to say, so remote work has sometimes been viewed as a mixed blessing, like the idea that it, it might even reinforce hierarchies about who um, who shows up, who puts in FaceTime, and that might translate into, into um, advantages for people who continue to show up. And, and in that way, I think there's a fear that remote work might... Um, exacerbate uh, some of the inequalities that, that characterize life at the office. Absolutely right. Before the pandemic, in most office cultures, in the United States in particular, we have what's called FaceTime bias. And this shows up over and over again, that managers and CEOs, bosses, people in power, that's the way they worked. And so then they turn around and they reward people who work like they do. In the office, I can see you. Uh, you know, you're always here, uh, you come in early, you stay late. Uh, I don't know what you're doing, but I have this sense that you're dedicated. What that does is that equates presence and long hours with productivity and commitment. And that's not necessarily true at all. But what that did is that disadvantaged people who needed to work flexibly, who needed to work remotely or needed or wanted to. And so typically before the pandemic, that tended to be women and caregivers. And so it's not surprising that that FaceTime bias then just reproduced those kind of patriarchal hierarchies of largely white men in power, then reinforcing and promoting white men into positions of power. And there were surveys before the pandemic that asked you know, CEOs around the world, who is the ideal worker? And more than three-fourths said, you know, somebody with no caregiving, somebody who's always here. Well, that's never going to be a mother, you know, as we saw women just completely hammered by all the caregiving responsibilities that, that they had to take on through the pandemic. Have you had experience with that yourself? I mean, are you talking, are, are you speaking from personal experience here? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I remember uh, I, I did go down to a four-day work week for, for a while after my daughter was born. And I remember uh, editors calling me and saying, you're going to ruin your career. Don't do this. Don't do this. And um, I worked on a project and another, <laughs> and you know, so one of the comments was like, wow, she did that on a four-day work week? You know, as if like my brain had fallen out, you know? So there, yeah, I definitely experienced that it's just kind of a this knee-jerk bias. It's like, it's actually sadly human, you know? We are comfortable with the status quo. That is what we know. And that is what drives so much of our workplace norms. It's just like, well, we've always done it this way. And even though people are burning out and even though our productivity isn't all that great, it's what we know. So we're going to keep doing it. We're going to double down on it. So as the pandemic ebbs and future patterns of work assert themselves, this is the dilemma that we face. Going to the office five days a week limited our mobility, and long commutes stripped out our free time. Leaving the office left us isolated. And letting people choose between the two seems to reinforce the very hierarchies that marred the office experience in the first place. Naturally, there are some new ideas out there. Synchrony just announced that they've got this new policy as they're thinking about returning to work after the pandemic 
uh, like how are they going to avoid what we've been talking about, kind of reinforcing hierarchy or making it worse? What they've come up with is that they've basically barred anyone from coming into the office five days a week. So they've, they've agreed that they're going to embrace hybrid work. So you can, they're going to have some in the office. They're going to have some remote. They're going to have some hubs, which is what a lot of companies are talking about. But they don't want anyone trying too hard. Well, this new policy is they're trying to, to disrupt that kind of status quo of like, oh, I'm in the office. So, oh, you must be a better worker. Right. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I mean, how many times have you been in the office and you've looked around and people are just kind of shooting the shit and talking about the football game or like, you know, there's a whole lot of that's, just that's nothing what I like that most goes about on in it. the office. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I listen, and I was the person who was working my ass off at home, but nobody could see me, you know? If you look at um, uh, some of the research that's been happening during the pandemic, remote workers are actually as productive or even more productive. But there's a downside that productivity comes because we're putting in more hours. We're just working more. And the weird thing about that is that people actually feel okay about it because they're in control of it. When we come back, how these changes might free families to move, give workers more power, and lead to society-wide action on childcare, healthcare, and other shortcomings of the American system. Or not. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is What Next TBD. I'm Henry Grabar. We're talking with Bridget Schulte about what the post-pandemic return to the office might look like and what it would mean for work-life balance. The sort of symbol of remote work during the pandemic has been these, uh, you know, digital nomads, people roaming around the country in their van, uh, getting Wi-Fi to run, you know, to to send a bunch of emails in the morning and then going for a hike in the afternoon. Um, And it sounds like that is sort of a red herring, like those people do not represent where we're going as a society. (laughs) It's probably a more gentle uh, transition. And and that also means, on the other hand, that we're not going to see people streaming out of New York City and the Bay Area um, into, you know, Rust Belt cities in uh, upstate New York or, or the Midwest. I think it's too early to say that this that digital nomads are a red herring. I just I think it's just really going to depend on the cultures that develop and what they what they allow, what they value, and ultimately what they end up rewarding. Because if you're a digital nomad, but you keep missing promotions and you're not getting pay bonuses and you're not valued, well, I can imagine you're going to get the message that even though the policy says you can do it, if it's not working out in practice, you're going to run right back to the office. This is why we're at this kind of like very fragile gelatinous moment where a lot of managers and CEOs who already have a lot of power will have a lot of power to figure out how work is going to shape people's lives next. Okay, but here's here's the flip side of that. Um, you, you know, obviously some of the first movers are the ones that are saying, all right, back to the office, enough of this, uh, you know, uh, intermediary, long intermediary period of uncertainty. I'm talking about some of these big banks, for example, that have been leading the charge on getting getting workers back. Um, but uh, in the Wall Street Journal, I'm reading that some other banks, such as Citigroup, are waiting uh, because they think that they are going to be able to poach talented people who value uh, remote work uh, or the ability to work remotely some of the time, as, as surveys show uh, many workers do, and that firms that hold back and that have looser policies are going to be able to attract more talented people. I mean, I, I think that's the flip side. And maybe now that we know that this is on the table as the kind of thing you can bargain for realistically, that firms will just have to follow follow talented workers in, in establishing these policies. That's a fascinating uh, and, and kind of exciting thing. Yeah, the sort of the race for talent could really reshape this. But I guess what I wonder, cultures are so strong that even if you have this kind of short-term competition for talent, like who can be more flexible and who can allow for more digital nomads and give you more freedom and well-being. Will that last? If Citigroup and others are sort of holding back, wanting to poach talent, well, then they better deliver. You can attract all these people who want flexible work. You can promise them flexible work. But in two years, if they're not on the same track and they're not promoted and, you know, you haven't figured out how to manage and work with them and value their work, you know, you're going to lose them. 
or, you know, you need to do the work to change your culture to make that real. I think it's important, too, that we recognize, and I know you do, how limited this conversation is to a certain and sort of elite sector of worker. I do wonder, to some extent, if we're putting the blame for some society-wide problems, such as the lack of affordable childcare, low wages, um, cultural problems, uh, gendered expectations, if we're, if we're putting um, those problems onto the back of the workplace when, in fact, they're a much more uh, widespread phenomenon. And if white-collar workers um, get to work from home, that may help them with their childcare uh, needs, but it does nothing for everybody else. Well, actually, I would argue that working from home doesn't help white collar workers with their childcare needs, <laughs> because basically working from home means that you have to work and do childcare and in the last year and homeschooling, and that's just unworkable. But I think you raise a really important point, and that is we need to see work as part of this bigger picture. And work only works when it has all of the supporting infrastructure that actually makes it work. And that means care. And that means care for children, uh, for, you know, schools, for af aftercare. It means, you know, care for, uh, you know, disabled uh, uh, family members. It means care for the elderly. And we, we have no care infrastructure in this country. It's, it's, abominable. You know, we do, we are the only country that doesn't have paid maternity leave. We're like one of six advanced countries that doesn't have paid paternity leave. We have no investment in a childcare infrastructure in the way that our advanced uh, peer economies do. We do not invest in what I love this one economist called the common genius, because we have this myth of the individual here, you know, that we all yeah. create our own destinies. And so if we're really going to talk about how to make work work, then we need to talk about how to make all those systems around it work. Well, let me ask you then, Bridget, if, if white collar workers are able to claw back some of their free time, some of their leisure time, some of their flexibility um, through advocating for hybrid work that gives them more separation from the office, allows them to take more time, spend with their families, do the things they want to do and all that. How do we extend those gains to be society wide and not just to workers who, who, have, who have the privilege of, of being able to, to not go into the office every day. Yeah, that's critical. Let's remember, and I'm saying this with clenched teeth and I'm trying not to swear, let's remember that the latest data shows that about 20,000 childcare centers still are closed. You know, we've lost one in nine childcare workers. We do not have the system that people can actually go back to work yet. You know, <laughs> we, we haven't invested in, in figuring out how to build that system. So, I mean, all of this talk about going back to the office is so disingenuous in some ways because, you know, yes, we have roads so that, and bridges so that you can actually drive there and we've got some public transportation you can get there. But we don't have the care infrastructure that would enable everybody who can and wants to come back to work. And that's not just for office workers. Work may not change dramatically in the next six months to a year, but it's going to in the next 10 to 20 years. And so why not begin having these larger, harder conversations right now? Bridget, thank you so much for coming on. Great to talk with you. Thanks so much. Now you've got me all riled up. I have to go take a walk around the flock. I'm so pissed off again. 
Bridget Schulte is the director of the Better Life Lab at New America. That's our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. This week, we're edited by Tori Bosch and Alicia Montgomery. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you missed it, check out Wednesday's What Next, in which Mark Stern talks about the Supreme Court. Mary Harris will have a new show for you on Monday, and Lizzie O'Leary will be back in the host chair next Friday. I'm Henry Grabar. Have a great weekend. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.